So welcome to this episode in our series of podcasts in collaboration with our partner ISCOS. I'm your guest host, John Thompson, Clinical Education Manager for WellSpect in the UK. Now I've worked in the medical device industry for over 20 years, having formerly been a nurse in the NHS, and I've worked in the field of intermittent catheterization for approximately seven to eight years. Now to help me discuss this topic in depth, I'm joined by two experts known globally for their work in the field of intermittent catheterization. Please, can we welcome firstly, Diane Newman, a urology nurse practitioner whose current practice involves the evaluation, treatment, and management of voiding dysfunction and related problems, including the use of catheters and other devices in the management of bladder disorders. Diane is the lead editor of the 2018 Clinical Application of Urologic Catheters, Devices and Products. We're also joined by Veronica Geng, the head of the Advisory Centre for Nutrition and Digestion for Spinal Cord Injured People in Lobach, Germany. Veronica is also one of the course coordinators for the first Spinal Cord Injury Nurse Massive Open Online course currently going ahead. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, John. So I'm looking forward to getting into this topic today. What makes intermittent catheterization safe, reducing the risks of complications for long-term use? And we've already had some discussions together preparing for this podcast, so I know this is going to be a really insightful discussion. And topics we'll be discussing which reflect the learning objectives of this podcast will include what we consider best practice and guidance for healthcare professionals to ensure long-term use of intermittent catheters, specifically those with spinal cord injury, are being performed safely. Uh, which factors we consider specific to the individual catheter user, considering, again, individuals with spinal cord injury, which may impact on the long-term safety of using the catheters. And, of course, we'll be discussing which tools and techniques healthcare professionals should consider when thinking about reducing those complications, and also how the catheter properties, design material, and surface properties also contribute to the risks. So the first question I'd like to put to both of you is... Um, the issue of one of the inherent challenges in the long-term use of these types of catheters, which is basically trauma associated with repeated catheterization, which is often hidden. And bearing in mind that that factor that it is often hidden, what in your opinion needs to be considered when prescribing those catheters for spinally cord injured patients? Veronica, do you want to comment first? I think the people in my um, special field, the spinal cord injured people who has to categorize her bladder lifelong. Maybe it's a, it's a guy with 24 or 25 years old and he will get 70 or 80 years old and he needs this kind of emptying the bladder for many, many years. And so it's really necessary to look that he could do it in a good way, in a safe way, and he doesn't get any complications in this field, that he could empty in a good way his bladder uh, for a long, long time. And there are some some aspects we have to uh, focus on that it's not the cheapest casita to use. It's a good casita to use with a good coating, with safety eyes that they don't, don't hurt the skin. I think these are the main uh, things to have a focus on. And the patient, whether he is a tetraplegic person for example, he could use it in a safe way and he could handle the casita in a good way for his uh, handicap he has. And so it's not one casita who match for all people. I think it's very individual which casita match to which patient. I agree with Veronica. And one thing that she brought up that I think is so very important is that 
these individuals are aging and, and long-term catheterization. And I think the complications are just going to increase the longer you catheterize. So it's really important for clinicians to see these individuals periodically, to observe how they're catheterizing, to review what type of catheter you're using. Veronica mentioned the fact of different components of the catheter that we have to think about. Technology in this field is really changing, I want to say, every year. And there's new and better coatings. There's new and better catheters. You know, industry has been really receptive to what patients and clinicians want as far as designs. So you really need to see patients with spinal cord injury on a routine basis to say, hey, is there something better you can be doing? Because the goal should be prevention of any complications. That's a really important point, isn't it? I think the lifelong nature is a factor. I mean, the reality is that life expectancy now for people with spinal cord injury is pretty much close to in line with with the general population. And if someone's injured in their 20s and they're living till into their 70s and maybe beyond, then things change over time. So that review obviously is, is key, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I don't know what we find in other countries, Veronica. I don't know where you're finding where you are, but a lot of times I'm in urology, these patients are lost to follow up. They may be handled by rehab centers or maybe they're just handling on their own and they call in for, hey, I have this problem. I may have an infection, treat me. And I, I think that's a problem that we're going to be seeing over time more and more problems and complications with these individuals. I think that's the same in Germany. And I think if you look to the spinal cord injured people, uh, they get the advice to go to the urologist for every year. And if you look how many people come there, um, there are a lot of people lost. They don't make any checkups or things like this until they have no problems. They mainly come if they have problems, then they go to the doctor, but not for the prevention things or to observe how the things are going on. And that's sometimes a problem because uh, you could prevent things if you see it before they happen and not only if the problems is there and then you have to, to look what was the reason why they have the problems. And I think the better way would be the prevention aspect. Yeah, and it's another interesting factor, which is something we're coming across more and more in the UK, and it maybe it resonates in other parts of the world, is the whether or not an individual goes through a specialist rehabilitation in a specialist centre or whether they undergo their rehabilitation in a non-specialist centre and the differences in terms of support and service both during rehabilitation and post-discharge can be quite profound. And that actually leads into another point I was about to get your thoughts on, which is how much that the unique nature of spinal cord injury and the rehab phase, what an individual goes through or what they go through during rehab impacts on the long-term safety of the therapy, contact time with healthcare professionals, the relationship with the healthcare professional, and obviously the, the nature of their actual specific condition, level of injury, et cetera. Well, I think that it's the rehab facilities here in the United States are really wonderful and they have really close relationships with urology so if there's any issue as far as difficulty, you know, hey, stricture formation or something happening, they can right away bring that individual, that specialist in to assist them. But I have to tell you that I find that in urology, we have a lot of education to nurses and clinicians on intermittent catheterization, but I don't see it that much in the Association for Rehabilitation Nurses in this country. And there's kind of like this disconnect here as far as education and I think that actually, you know, in Germany and actually countries where you have more of a systemized way of healthcare, 
you're, you're hitting all these types of areas that need really that expert input. Where here, it's somewhat fragmented, I think. And, and I think that's a real negative for um, someone who's performing intermittent catheterization long-term, because I don't think there's that continuity of care. Does that reflect in your experience, Veronica? I think, yes, I could agree with that. And I think the other problem, um, for example, in Germany is that the rehabilitation nurse learn the intermittent catheterization and also the urological nurses, but not all the nurses learn the things all over the country. And so if the patient's not going back to his rehabilitation center or spinal cord unit or to a doctor who is specialized in neurology, I think he gets sometimes also wrong advices or not the best advice he could get. And that's a problem for the one side. And the other side, for example, yesterday, I've heard from a patient that he said, my assurance will not pay for this amount of casitas I need. They said five times a day, it's enough. But he need eight casitas a day. And so the, the health system and the individual needs of the patients not match very well together. And they have to fight for their rights that they get the materials and the patients get tired for that because they have to fight for the wheelchair, for the casitas, for the bowel irrigation or whatever. And sometimes they are really tired to fight for their things they need for their daily activities. You know, Veronica, you're bringing up a really good point. I have to tell you a story I always tell, and actually it was, involves WellSpec. Years ago, WellSpec, John, your company came to me and said, could we do a small study where we take individuals who are reusing their catheters, so for multiple catheterizations, and switch them to single-use hydrophilic catheter, okay? I said, oh, this is wonderful. And one of the exclusion criteria was they could not be on antibiotics or have a recent UTI in the past six months. So naively, I'm like, oh, yes, no problem. Well, I couldn't find patients who were not <laughs> taking antibiotics, Veronica, even though, you know, I don't know if they had infections or not, but I was, I was kind of really naive thinking, but they, most of the ones I contacted as far as, do you want to come into the study? You know, you get these catheters. They run antibiotics or they have been treated. And I don't think we realize how much that's happening in, I think, around the world, right? Because UTIs associated with intermittent catheterization is the number one complication we see. And patients so easily don't come in, in, in the United States, they call in, someone gives them an antibiotic. And worldwide, we have such a problem with antibiotic resistance that we are really harming these individuals by prescribing this. So you're right. It's, it's just really difficult because they're kind of out there managing it themselves. And we don't really have a good grasp of what's really going on long term in this population. And that's something that, that does resonate, actually. It's reminding me of several conversations I've had with individuals in the last year or so. We've been doing some group conversations with people's spinal cord injury and particularly asking them about their experience of rehab and discharge. And there is a, I wouldn't say this is for every individual, but I do get a sentiment fed back to me of, you know, I don't want to look back. I want to look forward. And actually, strangely, they don't want to necessarily always be referring back to their original clinicians that they were dealing with. They want to get on with their lives. Um, so actually, there's a double double effect there, isn't it? The clinicians haven't got the time or the facility to follow them up, and they don't want to be followed up anyway, is basically what they were saying. So, But then they're off on their own, and they're having to deal with these problems, like you suggest, that are profoundly ongoing for the rest of their lives. 
so yeah, I mean, I think it's a conundrum that we're always going to be challenged with, isn't it? And really, yeah, a challenge for all healthcare professionals. One of the questions that came up, I know we discussed this um, before, and one of the questions that came up in going back to the teaching of ISC to, to the individuals is, who's the best person to do it? Obviously, in a rehab setting, you've already mentioned several healthcare professionals could be involved in that. I mean, in your experience, is there a definitive answer to that? Yes, I think the best person is the person who is experienced in the field. They know the problems with catheterization. They know also the things what you can do in the prevention of complications. They know the material and could imagine or have an idea which catheter is for which patient the best. Maybe one patient is better with a very softly catheter and the other better with a wicked catheter so that there is a lot of experience you have to have that you could give a good education to the patients. And then you have to look at the, the patient who has spinal cord injury, for example, the patients, they are in a, in a situation like a crisis and this crisis you can't learn really in a good way. So it's not enough to teach one time. You have to teach one, two, three, maybe seven times until the patient is optimal to doing his own catheterization. Yeah, you bring up a really good point that they're in a vulnerable position initially. And what we teach may not be what they really need as they go on in the rehab process, right? Especially with spinal cord injury patients. The dilemma that I think we have, though, is that You know, I say the person who should be instructing is a registered nurse. Now, we have many levels, right? I mean, I'm sure you have that too. And then a nurse is a nurse is a nurse is what I hear. Well, a lot of people call themselves nurses, and they could be technicians even. And, And it gets back to what kind of education that they have. I actually just yesterday was on a call with an instructor at the School of Nursing here at the University of Pennsylvania because I do a bowel and bladder in the older adult lecture every year for the undergraduate nurses. And when I did it last time, I asked them how many of them have catheterized someone or had experience, and no hands went up. Now, these are nurses coming out of a four-year degree program here at one of the top you know, schools of nursing in this country. And I brought this up to this instructor, and because we're going to move this lecture to online. And I said, could I do an online series about catheterization. And her comment to me is, oh, well, they learn to catheterize. They do one catheter in their training. And I'm like, you know, she's not getting it. Do you know what I'm saying to you? And and so how do they learn? They may learn when they go out in the, you know, in their practice in a hospital or in the rehab center from that nurse who may be mentoring them. Are they going to learn the correct method? I don't know. This is a problem as far as education and the skill of that individual who's teaching, because that's when it starts, doesn't it? If you don't really have a good way to teach and to get that individual to buy into the fact that they need to catheterize, we all know that complications are going to occur. They're not going to adhere to catheterization. And, you know, one of the studies, which kind of was very depressing to me, was that they looked at individual spinal cord injury patients and neurogenic patients who uh, needed to catheterize long-term. What they did, and a lot of them wanted to stop it and convert back to an indwelling catheter because they were so frustrated with it and so tired of it. That is not good. We talk about complications. An indwelling catheter has much more problems, higher morbidity, higher mortality. We do not want this population trying to switch to that type of 
bladder drainage. So that nurse is so important, but the question becomes, who is that nurse? Who is that teacher? How are they trained? Mm. And I think this, it's interesting, again, you know, the, the, the issue of absolutely, we would say a registered professional, whether it be a nurse. I mean, the other th- in the UK, we see physiotherapists with specializing in this area because of their interest in pelvic floor. And I would argue, I'd, I feel quite strongly about this as well. The registered nurse, registered professional has then responsibility and their registration obviously to be held to account if, if there are complications or problems. So, yeah. Although interestingly, and this is one that geographically can differ, isn't it? I know that in some centres in the UK, you have healthcare assistants, so non-registered healthcare practitioners who are teaching the patients on a daily basis because they're in a rehab setting. So that's an interesting point as well. I also would say the registered nurse is the ideal level. But if I have no registered nurses and the patient has to empty his bladder, maybe also other people should do that. And I think in the moment we have the situation, we have less nurses or people in the nursing field. And I'm happy if the patient learned the catheterization factor because in the moment I saw a lot of, of younger people going home with the indwelling casida. And if I asked them, he said, oh, that it's very comfortable. I don't have to ask for help. And I think a nurse also have to educate the patient what is the best way to empty his bladder. And that's not the indwelling casita for a 25-year-old boy or girl. And that's also a problem with the, with the field of the health system, that we have not enough personal to make the things we should do for the patient, that he get a good rehabilitation, and especially in the field of bladder, that he get a lifelong good situation for his bladder. And there is an issue, I, I mean... One of the things that's being touched on here is is standards, isn't it? Standards of competency. Mm-hmm. How can we be sure that a nurse in Hospital A is teaching exactly the same way as a nurse in Hospital B? And that's a challenge across all therapy areas, I guess, isn't it? It's not just an intermittent catheterization. And if that standard exists and everybody's aware of it and, you know, there's some kind of competency framework to do that, then you're sort of at a start point. But you're still going to come down to individuals and skills and experience, aren't you? Yeah, that's true. And the question is, once they come out of education, where do they get educated? I mean, on the job, education, training, right? Because, I mean, how many, I don't know, how many nurses really go and like to the internet to look at guidelines? I mean, you know, maybe in academic centers, like in my area, I try to share with my staff the most, the latest guidelines or the new technology, but, you know, out there really in practice, are they getting that information? And I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 there's no way for us to understand how people continue their education in these areas. And healthcare is getting so and so complex. There's so many areas they not have to know about, right? That this may be, you know, something that falls off their radar. I agree. I agree. It's a topic that's close to my heart and I could probably talk about all day, to be honest. I've been working in the industry for, you know, 20 plus years and obviously prior to that, a healthcare professional myself. And, you know, ironically, I'm I'm probably more aware of guidelines and protocols doing this job than I ever was when I was actually practicing because it's my job to know it literally now. And I do point the finger quite deliberately at some individuals of, you know, you create these guidelines, but how do you actually then disseminate and share them? And that's that's the important bit, isn't it? And uh, it's the same with standardization of practice. But uh, like I say, I could talk about that all day, but I won't. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, so we, sort of leading on to the, onto the next area that we were going to discuss, and again, specifically to spinal cord injury, 
we know that obviously, as we've touched on before, that this is a cohort of patients that are particularly susceptible to trauma and injury, particularly because they are, as you suggested earlier, I think, Veronica, you said about someone catheterizing eight times a day, and that's not uncommon. Obviously, that's trauma damage that can be enhanced by poor technique, all kinds of different variables, which I know we'd probably be talking about now. The patients themselves, often they'll say to us, we need to know more you know, to make those decisions and to understand what's happening to our bodies. So that issue of informed choice is quite a hot topic, isn't it? And it's more and more the case in healthcare. I mean, how much do you think we should inform patients of the risks, but also the factors and potentially, shall we say, the evidence behind both the therapy and the types of devices they're using? I think the evidence is a very important aspect that we look what is the best way to do things in, in, in the nursing field as well in the medical field. But I also think the evidence should go into the practice. Not so many nurses in Germany are able to read studies, for example, because they don't understand the statistics, because they don't understand enough English in, in our field of Germany, and there are some problems. The European Association of Urological Nurses going to make practice guidelines on an evidence-based level. There is a part of evidence there. We look to the literature and all the things. And then the second part of the guideline is how to do the things, to give instructions, to give a hands-on how to do it in the practice. And I think we have to match the things, evidence and practice together. The patients need to get both parts that they say, we know out of the studies that this is the best way to do something. And the other part is know the practice to say, okay, you are not able to do this in this way. Then the next best way will be a little bit smaller or a little bit in a different way. But it's also okay if you do it in this way. And that needs experience from the nurses. That needs evidence. And I think a lot of practice and looking to the patients, how they're doing the things. You know, Veronica, you bring up a, a good point as far as you may think that this is the way we should do it based on evidence, which, by the way, I use those European nursing, urology nursing guidelines all the time. I'm very thankful that they actually come out with some practical ways. It's based on evidence of how to handle these patients. But when you think about the spinal cord injury patient, they're dealing with their spinal cord injury. They probably have other issues as far as, okay, I'm not going to walk again. I'm going to be in this wheelchair. And then we want them to do exactly what we say with their intermittent catheterization. And I think that informed consent is really important because, John, that's what you're talking about. Not so much, I want you to do this because I know that down the road, you're going to get a stricture or you're going to get an infection. But what is their situation? Where are they at in their rehab process and their acceptance? And then how can I tailor my instructions towards that to help them? And I don't think enough as clinicians that we stop and say, okay, now, what do you know? How do you want to move forward with this? Because somehow you're going to have to develop a way to empty your bladder, right? That's what we're saying. And you have to do this consistently or you're going to have other problems that you don't want to have. And I don't think that we do enough about informed consent because we're talking about the nurses not being informed about how to teach and how to do intermittent cath, but what about the patient, right? They have no idea. And then they have this injury and they're like, oh my goodness, the trauma from recovering from that. They may have other issues going on with that injury. So I think, John, informed consent is so difficult in medicine in general, but also with this. And the other thing I think that we have to think about in this population is what is their goal? 
what are their goals now? Their goals may be, I don't know, I want to walk, you know what I'm saying? And they may be a paraplegic or spine. I mean, that may not be realistic, but hey, that may be how they start out. They, they have to come to realization of where they're going to be at. But what is their goals? And I think that we, we often don't incorporate that into our initiation of intermittent catheterization in an individual patient. And we have to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, one of the questions I have sitting here in front of me is, is how do healthcare professionals inform the patients about the therapy and potentially the catheter choice they're going to make? I think you've sort of partially answered that question already. And I guess the simple answer is, it's difficult. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I, know I was oversimplifying it, but, but, you know, an informed choice based on all the information and evidence available. Well, that's impossible because all the information and evidence is vast. It's a library. It's down to the healthcare professional to decide, I guess, what's in front of them in the moment and how to impart that information and have a consensus with the patient as to the decision made going forward, isn't it? It's, it's a partnership at that point. But it's interesting. I, mean, I guess they, I mean, it does lead nicely into the next question I was going to ask, which is, how do you do it? What information and tools, not just yourselves, but obviously in your experience of talking other, to other healthcare professionals, what tools and techniques during that teaching phase, you know, you, you find useful, you've used? Is there a magic tool technique to, to making sure it works every time? I don't know. Your, your thoughts? <laughs> For me, there is no magic tool for all the patients. I think you have to look on what level the patient is in the situation. And if he know he should be categorized in the hospital, he get categorized first by the nurses. He know the procedure from looking to that. And I think you make a stepwise way to get the patients to do him himself. He has to look how to do it. Then you make some instruction. You could explain him the different materials. You could show him the different between a casita who is very soft and smooth and between a casita which not have this adjective, so that is this aspects. And then you could show him what is a soft eye on a casita and what it is a, a rough eye on a, on a, on a casita. And if he, he take it with his, with hand, that's okay. But if he has no, no sensibility in the fingers, for example, or not enough sensi sensibility, you can show him he could use his tongue to take the experience. And I think you have to make, have some tricks to get the patient on a, on a good side that he understand why we do things. I think understanding is for me always one of the aspects they need to do things in a good way. If I understand why, I think I could do it in a better way than I only say you have to empty your bladder. You have to empty your bladder and you have to avoid complications and you have to be safe and not with a lot of problems. And I think to understand is for me always the first thing you, you have to give to the patients. Veronica, you're, you're right. It's just showing the patient the different components. One of the things I've done, because it's something I've been in this field for so long that I just did this past year, is I have a catheter center on Euro Today, which is a website. And I did very short videos of just show and tell. Here's a catheter. Here's the tip of the catheter. Here's a curved, you know, coude tip. And different things as far as here's what the coatings are. Because you're right. I think that sometimes we just bring the catheter in and say, okay, here's two. I'm going to, how about we use this one? How can you use this one without really going over the entire, you know, device? What's important about it, you brought up way back about the eyelets even, you know, that they're smooth, you know, that you don't want them rough, that what's the difference between a coated and uncoated? 
a lot, and most of the spinal cord injury patients may not have perineal sensation. So they may not know that, hey, I need more lubrication there because this is rough. You know, I'm having pain in that. When the fact that you need that lubricated coating to make sure that you're not traumatizing your urethra, especially, of course, in male patients. So there's a lot of things that go into that first initiation of catheterization. I try and tell nurses, don't do it all the first time. And with spinal cord injury, since it's taught in the rehab center, they're there for a period of time, they have time to teach them maybe a different piece every day, right? To let them really absorb it. I don't think that's done often. I think we rush through things and we think that everyone's going to understand everything that we know that, you know, we have years of experience and that's a problem with this group of patients. That's a really important point, isn't it? And I think we have to recognize we're talking about spinal cord injury. So you've just touched on the key point there, Diane, which is you've got a period of time during that rehab phase. And if it's not working out, then you switch direction and maybe try something different. One of the things that we've been working a lot on in the UK, WellSpec specifically, is what we call the clinic window. And that is in a traditional setting, i.e. non-spinal cord injury, you typically, and obviously this may be different in different uh, geographical locations, typically have a roughly three quarters of an hour with a patient to get everything across and get them to understand why they're doing this and how they're doing it. And and we've been working hard on looking at what tools can we put in the hand of the healthcare professional to help that to be as effective as possible. And that's quite challenging. Obviously, it's extremely challenging. But in the spinal cord injury setting, in theory, we have more time. However, in my experience, I hear of people who are shown one catheter, that's still the catheter they're using 10 years later even though they've had all that time. <laughs> that depends also on the hospitals, I think, sometimes. They only have one contract with one company and they get only this one casita to show and to use. And I think the patients at home see, oh, there are some different casitas. And then sometimes they take other casitas, they try it for their own to change the casitas and think like this. And that's not always the best way to do that. I'm for myself often thinking about uh, a casita license, something like a driving license for a car to get a license for nurses that they could give a good instruction for catheterization, for example. But I have not the right things how to do something like this, whether it will be a part of, of education or, or however. But the idea that I say, okay, there are nurses who are really good instructors for catheterization, that would be a good thing. Like it. <laughs> no, I, I think that would be really interesting if you could institute that, Veronica. That's a really good suggestion. You know, sometimes if you give them something, right, they're more apt to do it. And actually, they, they probably should keep us somewhat of a card around because if they go in the hospital, something happens to them, someone should know that, hey, I need to be catheterized in that, but that's actually a, a neat idea. I think so, particularly in this population, because it's such a higher risk in terms of the long term, as we've been touching on. It's interesting. I mean, and just going back to the previous question, actually, the thing about, obviously, the teaching of the patient, one of the things I know we discussed previously is where where that happens. And again, in, in a rehab setting, it sounds like it's obvious where that's happening. But, you know, is that, is that an important factor? Is, is where they're taught? and where they first practice catheterization important? I think for me, it's the place where to do the education and where to instruct the patient for intermittent catheterization is, it's possible somewhere. But I think relevant for me is that the patient is able to learn, that the patient is willing to learn, 
that the patient is not in a stressful situation or that he is not stressed in this situation when I will instruct him. And also the nurse should not be stressed because it's not a good matching if they are stressed, they are not learning very well. So I think these are aspects are more relevant than where it took place. It should be a calm place and it should be in, in a room somewhere. But where the room is, if the other aspects are fulfilled, I think it's not relevant. Yeah, Veronica, that's really important, what you just brought out. Stress-free environment is what we're really talking about. Because what you don't want to do is rush the initial teaching for the first few visits whenever you're really working on getting that patient to understand what the importance of catheterization, and then all the different you know parts of the catheter. So there's so much to cover. So you want to decrease that individual's anxiety and their fear, because what I find is most people fear it. Once they do it, it, they're not as fearful, but just the thought of putting that tube inside, you know, I hate to say, John, but man, inside my penis, it's going to, sometimes it takes me a couple times before I can <laughs> convince them to try it. So the thing is, is that you want a relaxed type of stress-free environment, no distractions. It should be private, right, Veronica? Hopefully. Yeah. It shouldn't be in their, you know, rehab room where they have a, trap a, a, whatever, yes. yeah, yeah, they have yeah. all this stuff around and they have, um, a, you know, another patient in the bed next to them. I know with some of my patients, I take men are easier. I take them in the bathroom. And if they're sitting in a wheelchair, I teach them sitting in the wheelchair and in a bathroom, which is, you know, quiet to just me and, and that person. Women, it's a little bit more difficult. But with men, I think that that's easier for me. So I try to reinvent possibly where they may be catheterizing when they're outside of that rehab center. So, you know, you got to think about all those little components, but I think you're bringing up a really good point. It, it should be as relaxful as possible and stress-free. It's a really, really important point, isn't it? And that is an interesting one. There was a study a few years back published in the UK about the perceived barriers to intermittent catheterization, which focused mainly on, well, particularly on women. And the psychological, the physical, but actually the environment, the environmental factors were probably more subtle, but actually probably she understood it better, probably the most important one of all, because the psychological, emotional we can address, the physical we can address, but actually the less subtle stuff, more difficult. Now, the reason I mention it in this context is because you've mentioned the male experience. That's something that we're looking at at the moment and whether or not we try and go to the next level or that same sort of level of understanding of what the actual specific to male experience are of uh, barriers and fear as you said is a big one it's a fascinating area another topic we could talk about all day probably <laughs> maybe another podcast so yeah so we've covered a lot is there anything else you want to just raise uh, take home messages anything else you think we've missed that uh, you'd like our audience to you know be thinking about after this podcast well, the one thing I want to say is that I hope that if nurses who are listening to this realize that they're key to that individual being successful with catheterization. And I, whoever's teaching them, I, I just, the role that you play is so very important. And if you don't feel confident working with this population and teaching self-catheterization or intermittent catheterization, please seek out help. Either seek out someone that maybe knows more or has done it for more experience, knowledge, but there's also a lot of resources for you. I just want to stress that you can do it, but just really make sure that you feel well prepared and, and prepare yourself as much as you can. 
That's excellent. I think as a summary of the key point of this podcast, that pretty much sums it up, Diane. So thank you. I think the, uh, the confidence of the individual in teaching is so important and the competence is so important in the long term safety and outcomes for the patients, particularly in the patient group of spinal cord injury. So thank you again. Really, really appreciate your expertise, input, knowledge in this area. It's been a fantastic experience for me. So I, I, I thank you both just on a personal level as well. Thank you. Thank you. To wrap up, we hope everybody who's been listening to this has enjoyed this episode of uh, Spinal Cord Injury Care. What really matters is part of the WellSpec partnership with ISCOS. You can listen to this episode and full podcast back catalogue from your chosen podcast provider. Remember to like and subscribe to be the first to listen to upcoming episodes. There will be more of them. And if you have any questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. And you can email them to admin at iscos.org.uk. We'd also like to mention that ISCOS would like to invite you to the 62nd ISCOS Scientific Annual Meeting, which is taking place later this year in October in Edinburgh. All details are in the show notes accompanying this podcast. So thank you for listening. <laughs>